Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, the tastiest hour of talk in Music City. Now here's your host, Brandon Still. Hello, Music City. Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. My name is Brandon Still, and I am your host. Coming to you on a Monday. We are so excited to be here today. Hope all of you fathers had a wonderful Father's Day. Got to relax, spend some time with your children. And for those of you who are without your fathers, uh, our hearts go out to you. We know this day can somewhat be a tough day, but we're thinking about you in our hearts and prayers. Today, we're going to be talking with Jimmy Collins. Jimmy Collins is a regional manager for the Frederick Wildman and Sons Company. And he lets us know what that means. Uh, What is... Frederick Wildman and Sons, and what is he doing? So we we talk all about wine. Today is about wine. What is wine? How do you serve it? Just some of the basic knowledge. So if wine is one of those things that's a little bit intimidating to you, today's your day. This episode is going to be so much fun. Jimmy and I used to work together at Merchant's Restaurant in Cool Springs. Yes, the one in Cool Springs that was way long time ago. I think it was 1998 that we worked together there as servers. So it was really great to reconnect with Jimmy today. I think you're going to love this episode. Saturday was Juneteenth. It was now a federal holiday. We're so excited about that. And one of the things I want to do on this this show is I want to start highlighting uh, minority-owned businesses and Black-owned businesses. And we're going to start today, and I want to talk about the Germantown Pub. Um, Naima Walker-Fierce is the owner there, and she is amazing. Their trifecta wings are the things that legends are made of. So if you want to find an amazing place that has really good hamburger, they have a Nashville hot hamburger. Their fish and chips are to die for. They've got amazing salads, but they have the total community feel going on there. It's one of my favorite places. If you're in Germantown at the corner of Monroe and Rosa Parks Boulevard, and you want to support an African-American-owned business, Go check them out, Germantown Pub. But we have some really, really great news today on our on-brand. We're going to be on-brand today with Steve Colson and Spot On Technologies. We're going to bring him on right now. There he is. What's up, Steve? Hey, how's it going? What's going on, Brandon? You know what? I We talk about this stuff all the time. And one of the things that we've all, we've all known this, to go and delivery has been huge. And you used to have to pick up the telephone to call in wait in line. Do you want to put you on hold, please? You're waiting and you're ordering it and you hope that they get it right. But now there's technology. And one of the things the pandemic has brought on is that it has just shot ordering your food online just straight to the top. And kids today are born with cell phones in their hands. You have a pretty big announcement to today with Spot On Technologies. What do you got going on? Yeah, thanks. You know, we're actually very, very excited. We, As a company, we announced this on Thursday, 17th. But we uh, officially are the the first cloud-based point-of-sale solution and restaurant technology company to integrate directly with Google for ordering food. So we have now order with Google with spot-on restaurant technology. So anyone can basically, from a Google search or uh, Google Maps, Google your restaurant type of food, find you easier um, and actually order straight from Google. So that gives a better customer experience, much easier fluid process and gets those orders directly to your point of sale, printing in the kitchen, uh, KBS, however you're set up so that there's, you know, just an easier, smoother process. Not only that, but it's reducing costs. Uh, there's no additional cost for this Google integration. Um, it, uh, there's no third party, uh, delivery apps to, you know, to deal with as far as the commissions and the fees associated with that. Um, so we're just kind of, you know, helping again, just to help streamline, uh, the process for restaurants. The, another important thing, Brandon, I don't know how important this is for you guys, but keeping your customer data. So you're going to get to acquire customer data through this process as well. And keeping that data and owning it is huge for marketing your restaurant as well. So, but you know, yeah, went, so we're extremely excited. I went to FS Tech, the Food Service Technology Conference. We're going to go again this year in September. And one of the coolest things we talked about was, you know, if somebody comes in, every they place it to go order every Tuesday at six o'clock. And that's the day that they do it. And you, you don't really know these things, but when you can keep your own data, you can see that stuff and go, okay, Sharon Johnson places an order every Tuesday. You can send her a message. You can market her Tuesday at noon to say, 
hey, <laughs> you should be placing your order tonight. Would you like to try our new specials? Or you can send her one on Thursday and say, we know you normally order on Tuesday. It's like, wow, how did that's that's either amazing or it's kind of scary. But I think it's amazing if you're into marketing, if you're a restaurant. Absolutely. I mean, you know, just having that control and, and, and knowing just knowing your customers even that much more and being able to reach them and connect with them. Uh, it's huge. It's um, gigantic. And with Spot yeah. On Technologies, you guys are so customizable. It's what I really love about you guys. When I really learned about Spot On is that they're a POS system, but you can do so much more. You can do just the input. You can do, now it integrates with Google. So people can Google your restaurant. It says place order. They can place an order and it goes directly through Spot On. You're the only technology out there that this is working with. And if you want inventory controls, you want, there's so many more things you can do. Steve, how do people get a hold of you? If they want to learn more about this. Absolutely. Um, so first of all, email is a good way. I'll, uh, you can provide my cell phone number, which is uh, 615-480-6282. Or email me at s.colson at spoton.com. And happy I'm going to, to put that on the screen. If you're watching this right now, you can see on the screen, it's s.colson, C-O-L-S-O-N, at spoton.com. You can also go to our webpage at www.nashvillerestaurantradio.com. Find the Sponsors tab, and if you find the Spot On tab, it's a link that goes directly to Steve. You can go visit their website and see what they've got going on there. Steve Colson, I am so excited for you. I, you're, you've got to be a busy man with all of this new stuff going on. Thank you for taking the time to let us in on this amazing announcement. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. I know you're busy as well. I uh, hope you, you know, happy Father's Day again. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity once again. But Absolutely, man. Happy Father's Day to you too. And check him out. If you want to follow him on Instagram, he's going to post this stuff. You see it scrolling on the bottom of your screen right now at spotted underscore by underscore Steve. So go follow Steve Colson for everything new that's happening at Spot On Technologies. Steve, we'll talk to you soon, brother. All right, Brandon. Talk to you later. Yes, sir. All okay, right. We're so excited like to have Steve Colson on. And if you are looking for a new POS system, check them out. Go look at Spot On Technologies. They're doing some amazing things. It's not a one size fits all. They do so many things and you don't have to buy all of it. You can do as little or as much as you want. And that's the fun part. So if you call Steve, just talk to him. Ask him about it. He's happy to field any questions you may have, all this new technology coming out, it, I know it can be confusing. Uh, we're so excited to have them as a sponsor on this show. Guys, I hope you have a wonderful week. Brandon's Book Club, we are doing five dysfunctions of a team. We're super excited about it. Go check us out on Facebook. There's a group, brandonsbookclub.com. I'm getting more and more restaurants joining every single day. I cannot wait. The Zoom call is going to be on July the 11th. It's gonna be a Sunday night from seven to eight o'clock and I hope to have as many people on there as possible talking about how we can help your dysfunctional team get better. So five dysfunctions of a team by Patrick Lencioni. Go get the book. If you go to the Brandon's book club page, I have the first hour of the book. You can listen to it, kind of find out if you like it or not, but let's jump in now with Mr. Jimmy Collins. We're super excited today to welcome in Jimmy Collins, who's the regional manager for Frederick Wildman and Sons. What's going on, Jimmy? Hey, Brandon, how are you? Good morning to you. We're talking wine at 730. I like this. This is good. Yeah, man. You know, I I saw you the other day at the restaurant and yeah. we were talking and I was like, dude, you've got to come on the podcast because I've known you since, what, 1998? When, when, when dinosaurs were on the earth. Really? Yes, it was that long ago. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be 88 because 98. So, yeah, it would be that, right? That's exactly right. I moved here in 96 from outside Philly. So, and I've been here ever since. So, yeah, it was probably about 98. So, yeah, we've wow. been in the restaurant business one way or the other, haven't we? Food and beverage for, for decades. So, decades. It's been, I think, like 26 or 27 years for me. But you, so we've had interesting paths going through. And it's great to mm -hmm. see you. Great Let's, to see um, you. Too. Let's reminisce a little bit. Let's go back sure. to some of your backstory. And mm -hmm. when you were, we were waiting tables at Merchants. We left there. Where did you go after Merchants? Oh, boy. Now you're testing my memory at my age. Um, merchants, I think where I ended up was at the Mad Platter, uh, which was That's just right. an iconic restaurant in Germantown before anything was in Germantown, right? 
I mean, yeah, I remember just... working. I remember working there at uh, the Mad Platter one time, and somebody came in and stole the cash register during dinner. Just <laughs> grabbed it and ran, and the manager <laughs> ran out after him to get the cash register back. And the burglar turned around with a gun pointed. And a manager told me later, he goes, what was I doing? Like, why was I chasing this guy for, for this money when he's pointing guns at me? Anyway, it, I mean, that was it was a little rougher part of town uh, back then in the late 90s. But what a great restaurant. Amazing uh, restaurant. And that yeah. was, now is Mother's Ruin. That's correct. It's Mother, Mother's Ruin. I went back there. Uh, when Mother's Ruin kind of opened it and because uh, they had one of my wines there and they have a spirit brand of mine there as well. And it was just so weird to walk in because it was just like going back how many years and thinking about just the same wood floors and just, you know, knowing that what it was like for me. But I really cut my teeth there more than anything in terms of wine and food knowledge was was at that location. It was it was great. Loved it. You know, it's interesting. We worked at uh, Merchants together, and there was a manager named um, we had Gavin was one of the guys there, and then there was oh, yeah. another guy there named Jody. Um, yes, yes, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. Um, do you still keep in touch with them? I do. I still keep in touch with Jody because he's a broker now, and uh, but I remember my interview with Jody. He said, "What do you know about wine?" And I said, "I think that." white you know chardonnay is white and cabernet is red and then he said go buy a book and you need to learn about wine if you're going to work here and that was like 19 or something you know i, I didn't even yeah. Yeah. couldn't even buy wine right uh, ended up <laughs> learning like falling in love with it because i just the idea of wine pairing with food and just everything about i started learning about it and i just became fascinated by it, it just was one of those things to me that hit me and I was like, this is the most amazing thing. I'm good at this. I like it. And hey, every once in a while you get drunk. So that was really kind of the bonus <laughs> for me. You got paid what, for it. <laughs> what was it for you at Mad Potter? You said you really got in the wine thing. What was it? It, it was, yeah. And it's the reason is because the way, and you remember working at work, merchants or at least probably most restaurants, be it independent or corporate, how they're generally run. Mad Potter was such, I mean, the owners were just fantastic. And I had so much freedom that I could talk to guests, kind of get a feel for what they like to drink and then try them on something different. I could pair it with food. And it wasn't that corporate, hi, my name's Jimmy. I will be taking care of you today. Can I start you with a spinach dip or some, you know, whatever it would be, right? That would, That's usually the, the shtick that happens when a server comes to uh, a table. And mine was more like, hey, I'm Jimmy. Welcome to Mad Platter. The food's great. It changes daily. We can talk about the wine list. How can I get you started? It was so casual and I could just use my personality. So what, what really... And I always talk about this, about light bulb wines. I don't know if you've ever had this, where there was a, a light bulb moment when you had a wine and you realized, I want to know this product, whether you get into the industry or not, right? You just want, I want to know more about wine. And mine was a 1991 Mount Vita Reserve. So this is a from Mount Vita area of Napa Valley, right? So it's, it's a little more prestigious. And there are five grapes, and these are the five grapes that are found in Bordeaux, Napa does them as well. And I tasted this wine with lamb, uh, a, a lamb special we had. And it was that European, that was my light bulb moment. Like you just talked about Brandon, where you had them together and you go, this is why Europeans uh, have wine with food. This is why. It oh, just yeah. made total sense to me. And suddenly I just wanted to learn as much as I could about the product as a, as a result of that. I love it. I Let me see if I can name the, the those five grapes. Go ahead. Hit me. Cabernet. Yes. Ding. Cab Franc. Ding. Pinot Noir. No. No. Malbec. No. Malbec, yes. Mm -hmm. All right. So Cab Franc, Cabernet, Malbec, Petit Verdot. Ding. You got one more, and it's and, a more um, obvious one. More obvious. Don't, don't go deep. Uh, there you go. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yes. I still got a little bit of chops. You do got the chops, man. I like it. <laughs> so I'm in the same way. That Bordeaux style wine, like to me, it was Italian wine for me. And it was, yeah. I think it was just a, like a Sangiovese or just something. I, mm -hmm. I started getting into um, super Tuscans. Yeah. And the idea that 
just the rules around wine that you can't grow French varietals in Italy with and being called since you had these winemakers growing French varietals in Tuscany and yeah. they were just smoking these days and they're calling them Chiantis they're calling them Tuscan wines but the people in Tuscany are like no you can't do that because you're you're growing French grapes in Italian area but they were just absolutely killing me. a guy named Jeff Hopmayer do you know Jeff Hopmayer yeah Jeff yeah absolutely yeah. Turned yep. me on to a bunch of those, and I was like, wow. And then eating those when I was at Amerigo with Italian food and super Tuscan wines, and I was just like, that's it. That This is this is what God made these things on purpose for you to enjoy. <laughs> Very much so. And that, it was funny because exactly that story that you're talking about, you know, Italian laws, if you were making Chianti or you're making, you had to have certain grapes in those wines, right? And they oh, have yeah. to have the percentage. So then you have these winemakers that, that are having, you know, they want to do 50%, 70% cab with a little bit of Sangiovese, 80, 20, right? Cab. And there was no certification classification for it. So they had to create one. You know, they didn't want to call it table wine because these bottles of wine were going for like 200 bucks a pop. It's not table wine. So hence the IGT. I say classification. IGT. Yep. So that's that's where that came from. It's because of experimental winemakers. Not, you know, just want to break the mold of Italian wine and successfully so they did. So I found wine to be something that became less pretentious as I learned about it. And I always hated the people that wanted to, to throw out this let me tell you what I know about wine. And I always wanted to make wine approachable for anybody at my table. I didn't want to come across the table like I was this douchebag. I really yeah. wanted it to be like, hey, it's okay if you don't know anything about wine. I do know something about wine. Let right. me help. I always wanted to introduce somebody to something new. That was yeah. the thing to me. When, when, I was, when you had people that came in and they said, I'll just do a white Zinfandel. Because white Zinfandel was really big. Yes. white Zinfandel in the early late 1990s early 2000s was gosh you could barely keep that stuff in stock we sold so much of it and my only mm -hmm. goal was to get you out of a, a pink wine and into like a new zealand sauvignon blanc let me let me elevate you so you don't have to drink the pink wine let me put you in and now rosé is all the, the all the rage but i know right <laughs> that was my number one goal when you you had a, did you have a wine magazine back in the day? I did. I had a, I started a wine magazine. This was kind of like, I was right on the edge. I was in music just like everybody else was in the midst of doing uh, restaurant gigs, right? So I would write songs and, and produce some records and I did some demos and all that kind of thing. But then I hit this point where the music industry was changing. Everything was being downloaded and streamed. Uh, record budgets were shrinking and I had to make that choice between whether I wanted to invest in a studio or try something else. I was really passionate about wine. Everything you just said about the desire to educate people um, and, and the idea of a magazine came into my head because for one thing, I, as a, a server, and you know this, you get all your friends calling you from the retail store and they're always like, hey, I want to buy a wine. What should I buy? You know, and you're sort of like, I'm in the middle of a shift. I can't really talk right now. But they look at you as like a wine person. So they want to ask your your opinion. I thought, why not have a magazine that people can pick up for free in a retail store? And it'll be wines that are available in Tennessee, in Nashville in particular. And the reason being, because at that time you weren't allowed to ship wine from Napa to your house by law. You yeah. could only buy what was in the store. So that was the idea of the magazine. My wife's a graphic designer, so she did an awesome job uh, making the magazine look fantastic. And then we just had reviews from wines from some of the best tasters in Nashville. I had all the Psalms and everybody come for blind tastings. And mine was based off of not just is it good or not good, which is you know subjective, well-made. It's about the price. So, so how can you compare something that's 10 bucks in value to something that's 50 bucks. Well, in my opinion, if it's 50 bucks, you better be smoking. Better be really, yeah. really good. At 10 bucks, you, when you have that, you go, man, there's only 10 bucks? This is great. Like, as a wine compared to a $50 wine, it might not, it might not compare. But for 10 bucks, this is the best value. So mine was based off of value, not based off of just the wine itself, if that makes sense. I kind of added that to it. So I ran it for three years. It was called Nashville Wine Press. And then sadly it went out of business because of the recession. We lost all, all our right. advertising. The, the, the recession killed us in terms of advertising, you know? So, oh, yeah. yeah. So that's what 2008, happened. 2008, 
Yeah, it went, to, it went from 2006 to 2009, like right in the beginning, right? End of 08, beginning of 09. That's when I stopped. But I, I got a job with a distributor pretty much right after that. That's how I ended up from distributor to what I'm now is called a supplier, which sounds like a drug addict. I'm a supplier and I go through a distributor. But that is kind of the wine where the three-tiered system, you know, so. Well, can um, you Can you explain that, how that works? Because I think there's a lot of people out there who work in restaurants that hear the words, wine rep or on-premise, off-premise, regional manager, supplier, broker. Can you right. break down how the whole system works and what you do? I'll try to. I'll try to. So, so tier, you know, tier one, we'll call it, would be uh, someone like you, a GM, something like that, someone who's buying wine at a restaurant or retail store, right? Then you have a distributor, and this is a law in Tennessee that a distributor needs to distribute wines and spirits to both retail stores and restaurants. That's what they do. Um, someone like me as a regional manager, you notice my, my title is not a regional salesperson, yeah. uh, sales representative, because I don't go out and sell. My job is not to go out and hit all of these restaurants and retail stores and sell my wine all the time. That's not my job. In fact, people find out I work for an import company and go, oh my gosh, do you just drink wine all day? You know, it's always the first reaction. What a cool gig. You drink wine all day. I'm like, no, that's an alcoholic and it doesn't pay terribly well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, but my job as a manager is to basically manage my portfolio of wines, which is excellent. Frederick Wildman's very, very well respected but manage that portfolio from a pricing standpoint, from an inventory standpoint, from an education standpoint. I educate the distributor and the sales representatives so that they can go out and sell my wine. I give them incentives. If you sell X amount of cases of this particular Chardonnay, you know, you can get X amount of dollars per case. And it's a way to kind of get our brands out into the market and, and spread across you know, what we call points of distribution, right? That's yeah. that's what we're kind of going for is to get our wines out there so people have them. Um, and so simply, that's kind of what it is. I mean, I, I, I do go out and sell at times. Like I could come into your restaurant, but I have to be with a distributor and they have to talk about price. I can just talk about product. Here's a Chardonnay. This is from Burgundy, from the Cote de Bonne. Um, you know, X amount of uh, aging in barrel and then in bottle this, and then we release it. Yeah, here are the scores. That's kind of what I do um, on my side. Wow. Okay. So there's a bunch of weird laws around alcohol. The fact that you go in and you can't talk about price and you can't sell, but you can only talk about the product. Why is that? <laughs> I've heard rumor. I heard it was prohibition. I mean, who knows? I can give you various things about I mean, it's certainly. And I don't mean this as a knock at all. I'm just, it gives distributors a little bit more control. So it doesn't go out of hand. Because if you think about how popular Nashville is, if a guy like me could go into any restaurant with any one of my wines, uh, to Mirror Bowls, just go to Mirror Bowls, you could have how many suppliers like me, right? People who work for import companies come could come into your restaurant. There's so many that live here. You could be, there could be a barrage of people like me every day saying, Brandon, you available? Brandon, you available? And like, I've already seen four people. I can't see anybody, you know? So um, the laws were set up, I think, so that there's a little bit more control for the distributors and product being out there. So probably not the only reason, but I think that's part of the reason. And it's actually probably pretty smart. But here's, here's what's interesting. I can go into your establishment, see you, Brandon. I cannot open the wine. I cannot uh, tell you the price of the wine but I can talk about the wine. So I can show a bottle. I can say, hey, this is a Chablis, fabulous Chablis. It's really going uh, gangbusters. I see you have a hole and you know you have a, a room for Chablis on your list, consider this. Um, if you'd like to taste this, we can get some samples from the distributor and have you taste it. Um, and I think it's in a price point that you'll like. You know, so I can always, you know, sort of go around and say, well, it's somewhere between $30 and $35 a bottle, somewhere in there. A cost, you know, I'm not giving you an exact price. I'm giving you a range, right? Yeah. Now, if I, I come into Mirabal's with that bottle at night for dinner and I open it up and you call, you uh, charge me a corkage fee, which is fine. That's the law. I would say to you, hey, you want to try a glass of this? And you're like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll try a glass. Then you taste it. That I can do because I'm coming into your place. I'm eating and I've opened the wine for my enjoyment and I'm having I'm, I'm just you know, happen to share a glass with the 
general manager or the SOM or whoever happens to be at the restaurant. That's kind of a way around the law. Um, but I don't do that, truthfully. I, I like to go with the distributor. You know, sure, that, that's a long, you, you have to have a real need to want to try somebody a wine to, to go through all of that. Yes, exactly right. That's exactly right. So, so what is the, uh, what is your, your go-to if you're going out to eat, what's your favorite wine to drink? Oh, uh, well, I mean, it's so cliche, but it really is what I'm eating. I, I honestly, I work one of two ways. I either look at a menu and go, oh, I'm going to have that scallop risotto dish. And then I start looking at the wine list to find out you know, what's on that list that's going to pair with that well. Now, ultimately, I go to restaurants who support my products. So, you know, Cavicchioli, right, is is 1928 Cavicchioli Prosecco yeah. is at, at Mirabolz. So I know straight away I'm going to be buying that. So then I start looking and say, well, what will that go with? That's my, my other side is that if I'm going to support my wine at an account, I will know I'm getting that wine so then I'll pick the food based off of that. So... Well, that makes complete sense. I always did that when I was a sales rep, but people would say, come on and eat. I'm like, I only eat at people that buy from me. I go, I go to all the restaurants that yeah. I, mean, I, have, I get 45 restaurants that are buying from me and I'm going to go spend money where they spend money with me. It's just as simple as that. Right. And if it's not my, if I happen to be somewhere that it's not my account, it's not my state or something like that, I'll generally get a glass of wine of something I'm not familiar with. That's usually what I like to do. It's like, man, I have not had a Verdicchio in forever, and they have it by the glass. Let me let me get my palate back to what that tastes like, as opposed to a typical Chardonnay or something like that. I will I will get something obscure, Gruner Veltliner. You know, it's just something that I haven't had in a while. So we talked. One of the questions I think people ask when they talk about wine is expensive wine versus cheap wine you mentioned earlier in your the nashville wine press you were talking about ten dollar bottles of wine that drank much better than a ten dollar bottle of wine and fifty dollar bottles of wine that need to drink really good yeah um, what is why are what are some of the factors like why is a wine ten dollars and why is a wine fifty dollars is it is it all like why is wine really expensive what are some <laughs> of the factors that cause that I, you know, I, I would flip that and say, when you find out what's all involved in making wine, it's surprised how inexpensive it actually is because the, 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 the labor that's involved, you got to start with the land first. You know, if you want to say, this is where you look at labels, right? So if you look at a, a, a label on a bottle, let's just say from California, if it, if it says Napa Valley, that means the grapes, 75% of them had to come from Napa Valley, right? That's yeah. expensive land. That's Not like buying California. Right, right, right. And not just a California appellation, right? Yeah. So that's no different than buying a home in Williamson County than, say, if you're going to buy a home way over, pick another county that's far away where the land just it doesn't cost as much, right? Yeah. So that's kind of where that comes from. So appellation matters. So even though it says Cabernet on two different, level, uh, two different labels, you have to see kind of where they came from. So it first talks about the land, then the labor that's involved in doing it, then the expense of barrels barrels are crazy expensive right so um if you're using new oak versus old oak that's a price difference right there the the bottles the the way the the um the bottling thing is set up there's all these different factors play into how much something costs and then if you're talking about imported wine gosh you're talking about shipping costs you're talking about storage costs taxes it's amazing to me with how long it takes, like picking grapes, especially, you know, uh, hand harvested grapes, right? Picked by hand versus a machine. There's a cost difference right there. You're paying labor to individually picking out, cutting, cutting these, these um, clusters of, of grapes. Mm -hmm. That's as opposed to a machine just kind of going through and doing it right. Um, that's an additional cost as well. So the fact that they go through all this process, and especially in Europe coming over and they can keep, um, wine at least relatively affordable um, it's amazing to me because it's a labor of love I mean it's it's you know how it is if you invest in a winery it's like generally like people buying wineries are like these surgeons right they're buying these things up in Napa they have all this money and they think but it's just millions and billions of dollars you invest and I don't know if you get the return I don't know if the best investment, but it's an awesome, awesome to, to have your own winery. There's no doubt, but whew, I wouldn't want to do it. No, I mean, I, I'd be really cool to have a winery in Napa and that just kind of be 
your life every day. I mean, you'd have yeah. to have, you have to be pretty well off to do that. I imagine. Uh, yeah. But even if, so even if you're importing wines, let's just go back to Italy. If you have a, a table wine, a Italian red table wine, you yep. still have to ship it. You yep. still have to, I mean, you can buy cheap Chianti, you can buy cheap wine out there. Yes. But I mean, so let's just say the difference between a, you know, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, which is pretty cheap, versus a Brunello de Montalcino, right? So they're all coming from Italy. You have to, all mm -hmm. the same shipping costs. You got to do all this stuff. The actual grapes themselves are one, is one better than the other? Yes. In the sense of, of how they're grown and, um, you know, where they're yeah where they're grown it can make such a difference so if you see cheap chianti it's sangiovese but they're getting probably the, the buying it in bulk and it's less expensive i mean you can take that analogy anywhere you, you want you could get let me give you an example here's an odd one but it's strange but it really does make sense all right hang with me on this one right. i used to during college i used to make crayola crayons I worked in a factory and I made Crayola crayons. Okay. So, and one might say, well, what's the difference? You, you, you're buying crayons, right? What makes Crayola better than another brand right there? But if you ever tried the two side by side, you'll see the other one will break. And Crayola makes it in a way that's it's stronger and the color, they make their own color. It's a whole thing, but it's just a better quality. And similarly, the grapes that go in cheaper Chianti aren't like their, uh, bad grapes. They're just not as good as the San Giovese Grosso, which makes up Brunello de Montalcino. Yeah. They're better. They're, and and so the cost, so, you know, truthfully, Brandon, sometimes uh, demand plays into it, right? So if some wine has a big demand for it, re wineries will raise, raise the price because if they kept it at the same price, they'd run out and that would be the end. They almost raise price to keep uh, sales at a good steady pace for the next vintage coming up because you never want to undersell a wine you're out of stock within five months and then people have to wait five more months for the next vintage i mean just you want to have things sort of roll along and be smooth you don't want inventory stacking up you don't want to be too overpriced that your your warehouse and the winery has got like old vintage and it can't sell you don't want that either so it's a no. weird balance to kind of get those two. I hope that answers your question, but it, it really is where they get, you know, your bulk wines, your box wines, those are bulk um, grapes that they've bought at an inexpensive price. Sort of like Costco. They buy it at an inexpensive price so they can sell it cheaper. Uh, okay. doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, let me say one thing. Box wine has improved so much, so sure much has. over the years. So I'm not knocking that at all. I'm just letting you know that's kind of the difference. Okay. I think that explains it. I think that, you know, soil, you know, so if you're growing it in different soils, you look at the, you know, Bordeaux, which side of the Gironde you're going to be on. I mean, the the gra gravel soil or right. uh, if it's alluvial soil, whatever it is. And then there's certain areas where the soil is much better. So I think if you hear Napa Valley or Sonoma Coast for a Pinot or Walla Walla, whatever you're looking at in, in a New World side, there's different areas that are on longitude and latitude that actually are perfect for growing grapes. So when you hear that's something correct. that says Napa Valley, it's specifically from Napa Valley because that is the place that gets the right amount of rain, the right amount of sunshine. It's got the soil that have yep. older vines that grows better grapes, richer, better grapes that they can take care of when they harvest it and how that they produce it. So the, and, and the, you take some and there's only a small acreage where they don't have that many grapes and then they they just is it the process you pull a grape and then it goes into the maceration then fermentation yeah they crush it right they, crush they it. have that, they, they they crush that then and certainly for red grapes then you do your fermentation and you let that you know and that's a natural byproduct it's the cool thing it's you know you can say you know god created that that way whatever your belief is but they, they will just ferment right so it's, it's like certainly Noah, i think Got a little, you got a little toasty. You got a little toasty sometimes in the Old Testament, but but you know, <laughs> you know the grapes will ferment themselves, and then you you press it at the end of that, and then comes uh, some of the aging process, and then the bottling process, and all of that after that. Whereas white wine's different, you know, you don't um, age white wine with the skins on it. You know, the color, right? The color from red wine isn't from the grape, right? It's from from the skins, sort of stewing 
with the juice itself because the juice is generally clear. Both the, the, the juice color in red grapes and white grapes is generally the same color. It's they let the skins sit um, and that's what, uh, that's what creates the color that you see. Now, additionally, rosé wine, they, the reason it's pink is it's red grapes that they're just letting sit there momentarily. So it's only pink and then they remove the skins and that's how you get your rosé color. There's another way to do it. They can inject sort of red wine to make a rosé color, but let's let's go back with the original one just for now. That's what it is. You know, it's a short that's maceration. So yeah. And then white wine, I guess, just ferments without the... Yep, without the skins. They're gone. The skins? They're gone. They just let the juice sit there and do its thing. And then that, that goes through, you know, a fermentation malolactic fermentation now we're getting geeky but the yeah. both red and, and 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 some white wines do this to change this a lactic acid uh, uh citric acid sort of like a green apple you bite into that your your mouth gets kind of puckery and then it changes that acid to a lactic acid which is uh like milk there's acid in milk but you don't really notice it like you would a green apple that's malolactic fermentation it's changing one acid into the other acid so that's that kind of buttery cream, buttery, buttery cream thing you get in Chardonnays. That's malolactic fermentation. I've you never won't heard get a, that, put it like that. Oh, okay. So, so, and then, and then you won't find malolactic uh, fermentation in Savion Blanc or Pinot Grigio. That's why it's not, those wines are not described as buttery and creamy because they don't do that. Okay. So here's the thing. It's impossible to find a linen company who you can trust, who you like, who uh, you'd recommend. And if you're at a restaurant right now and you're looking for that company, you're unhappy with who you're currently using, and you want to start sourcing out, but you're waiting for recommendations, right now is your lucky day. Cytex is a third-generation, family-owned and operated linen, mats, and uniform company. They really are the good guys in the linen business. They're transparent with their pricing, they have incredible quality, and their service is second to none. Check them out at Cytex-Corp.com or give Ross Chandler a call at 270-823-2468. When talking about what chefs want, really the question is, how do they do it? No fees, no fuel charges, no surcharges, never. This allows you to order as much or as little as you need as often as you need. Seven-day delivery Access products every day, trimming your waste, increasing your valuable shelf life, and allowing you fresher product. 24-7 customer support. Call, text, chat, email, anytime, from anywhere. Uh, they take a team approach to serving you at 800-600-8510 or whatchefswant.com. They, they have very diverse product lines. Their chefs have access to thousands of items across many different categories that allow them to receive fresh products daily. This type of flexibility helps chefs with the ability to offer and test new menu items with ease. They have hundreds of trucks on the road every day to reach their vast market. Their focus is tight urban areas where groups of restaurants and chefs are located. Additionally, they have trucks from coast to coast bringing products to farms and artisans across the globe. You can order through your phone app or online. They truly are what chefs want. Check them out at whatchefswant.com. Supersource is the answer to your dish machine and chemical needs in your restaurant. They've got zero minimums and zero contracts, so they have to earn your business every single week. Zero minimums. Zero. They're not going to make you sign a five-year contract, even if you lease the dish machine from them. It's amazing. Jason Ellis is a hard-working man, and he is here to help save you money. Increase the cleanliness of your dishes and provide the best service in Nashville. So check them out. Go to our website at NashvilleRestaurantRadio.com. Click the Sponsors tab. Find the link for Supersource. And if you sign up there, you will get three free months of dish machine rentals right now. You can also check them out at Supersource.com. Or you can call Jason Ellis directly at 770-337-1143. What do you think the biggest misconception about wine is? Um, that it's hard to understand. I think people, uh, human beings, are, are, we go to things that we know, right? We, we're, we're very um, 
we do a lot of things in repetition. We do the same thing or we watch the same show or we, because we like, oh, I know that. I'm familiar with that. Wine's the same way. but And I think you would feel this way, Brandon, in the fact that you love turning people on to wines they've never had before. I think people should learn more. It's not that hard to learn the basics and try different things. If you like Chardonnay, you don't have to keep going to the same Chardonnay you buy all the time. Go to different ones. Try yeah. different ones. Because if you have it from one region of California versus another region of California, they're different. A, a Chardonnay coming out of Santa Barbara tastes different than a Chardonnay that's coming out of Napa. And you might be surprised. Uh, you might like the Santa Barbara better. You know, I deal in French wine, right? So I even, I even brought some props. And these are – I'm going to show you some labels if you don't mind. You, you sure. with me on this? Can I do this real quick? Come I'm going to show you – Go to full screen. Here is, here's one, if you can see it, sorry, the sun's starting to come in here. But this is a great, great producer, B.R. Simon, and this is mm -hmm. Chablis, Chablis okay. Grand Cru, right? Yes. So, and then I have this, which is Jermaine Favely, and this is a Polini Montrachet. Can you see that? I don't mm -hmm. know if the, the sun's doing it. All right. And it's a Premier Cru. These are both Chardonnay, and they're both from two different regions of Burgundy. This is in a cool, this Chablis right here is a cooler climate. So when you have this, it's a little, it's still Chardonnay and it still has oak aging, but it's not as prominent. So it's not unoaked, but it's certainly not a big full body. And, but someone who doesn't want that big buttery, oaky Chardonnay vibe that you might get from say a Rombauer out of Napa, they might love this because it, it's not Sauvignon Blanc in terms of texture, but it's certainly a little bit more steely i would say in that respect and i mean that the best way possible a little bit more lean right really fresh yeah. right and then this one is polini marche which is in the coke de bun so they get more sun exposure it's a warmer climate kind of thing here shouldn't say more sun exposure i'll just say warmer climate so that makes this one a, a, a little bit more fuller body right it's just a little bit more fuller body and riper fruit and they're both chardonnay but once someone understands what these labels say, because they generally will give you information that you need to know. First of all, Polini Montrachet is one of the best regions you can get Chardonnay from. Move it over anyway. to your left. To my left, right there. Or is the sun still going to be in it? Okay, I was wondering if. How you about could... that? Is that better? Yeah, that's good. That's okay. So, so and then it's Premier Cru. Pre Grand. Yeah. Right. So Premier Cru is telling you it's from the better vineyards. The, the best are Grand Cru, sort of like the Chablis I just had was Grand okay. Cru. So this Premier Cru, Champagne is just. Uh, you know, something else has to do, but that's not as important. But let you know, when you see Polini Montrachet Premier Cru, you know you're getting a really quality product. Here's one for you. It just says Premard. I'm going to go left, right, as you told me to do. So you see that, yeah, Premard, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Olivia Leflev, great producer of uh, white and red burgundy. Now, first of all, if it's a white burgundy or a red burgundy, it's either one of two things, white Chardonnay, red Pinot Noir. That's it. It can't be anything else. It's those two grapes. So this is a village. Pomard is a village in um, in uh, Burgundy, and it's an excellent, excellent village. So uh, village. So when you see Pomard, there's nothing that says Pinot Noir on it. Do you see it? Yeah. The reason is is because Europeans know what it is. They see Pomard, they know it's Pinot Noir. If it's red, they know exactly what it is. Right. So. So once you get the basics of it and go, someone says, I like Pinot Noir, and then they have something like this or something called a Bourgogne Rouge, which is just means Burgundy Red is what it means. Yeah. You'd be surprised. You don't have to buy Mayomi all the time. You can try these other Pinot Noirs that are out there, and you'd be surprised what you like and don't like. So it's label. Knowing a label isn't that hard. That just takes a little bit of reading and a little bit of tasting, and you'd be surprised how your palate will expand. There so you go. That's thank you. That was excellent. I always and I, I always talk about the label because there's so much you can learn from a label. Correct. So, would you consider that an old world Pinot Noir? Definitely. Okay, so Definitely. that's an old world Pinot Noir versus the Mayomi you mentioned, which would be a new world Pinot Noir. Right. Can you kind of navigate us down the road of the difference between those two? Sure. It's, I'm going to go right back to where you something you mentioned and something I mentioned as well. It starts with the soil. When you're talking about the soil itself, that is, you know, they've been making this Pinot Noir for centuries in Burgundy, right? So 
so the soil itself adds a, a flavor and a texture and a sense of of what's coming out of it. Um, then you have the climate that's involved and where it's stored in the barrels and everything like that. So old world tends to be, um, this is the way I would say to, to the general public, you're going to have, it doesn't mean your wine's going to smell like Seabiscuit's horse stall. It doesn't always <laughs> mean that. It can. And I love those wines. Don't get yeah. me wrong. But, but it doesn't mean it's always going to smell like that. But something that's a little more new world might have uh, the, the soils younger. The vines are younger. So they, that gives a little bit more of an American flavor to it. And then this has a European. And then you throw all those other factors I just mentioned in it. This will have probably less alcohol. Uh, an old world would have less alcohol than a new world will have a little bit more. Americans love alcohol. Don't get me wrong. So when we have a red wine that's jacked up to 14 and a half to 15%, we're all happy about that, right? Mm -hmm. um, Europe might be 13 and a half. And they, they follow laws to keep it within the range that they need to keep it in. The way I like to describe it is old world likes to express the fruit and it likes to express the uh, terroir, which is a com terroir just means the soil, the climate, everything involved. That's what they want to feature. Generally, New World wines want you to, they want to feature a winemaking process or um, maybe bring out too much fruit and not as much balance. Maybe bring out a little bit more alcohol. It, it all depends. I mean, it, I'm knocking, I'm knocking New World wines. I'm sorry, I, I am. I do, I do that too. But I, but but New World isn't just America, right? It's it's also South America, Argentina, oh, yeah. Chile, right? So so um, and New Zealand would be another one. They're not Old World. Um, Australia generally is New World, although you can yeah. get some Old World styles. So, well, I, I I would typically say like a New World to me, the perception to me is New World is more fruit forward, smack you across the face with that black cherry or chocolate or tobacco, whatever mm -hmm. it is that that. You just get that that fruit bomb right on the front end. You go, wow, that, I, I get that. And then Old World, I always loved drinking Italian wines because you kind of smell it and then you get that. It's like a chalky cellar floor kind of a long flavor to it. And you drink it and the mouthfeel is different and it just, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. It's so layered and structured. And New World wines, just you get that. It's just a punch across the side of the face and then it's gone. Yeah. And, and that's an overgeneralization of what, I would think there's obviously some new world wines. They're very well layered and structured and fantastic, but old world to me just kind of has a lot of different nuances to it. Right. And and you asked me a question, you know, a while ago about what wine and what I choose. If I, people always ask me, what's my one wine, but it's usually a region. I'm either going to speak, uh, pick Spain, Italy, France. It's going to be one of those three. Cause I love European wine. What I found in old world wine that I don't get as much from new world wine is that old world wine transports me to where it came from. So if I'm having Brunello, I've been to Multicino. It's, 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 as soon as I taste it, it just reminds me of it. Now I haven't been to Burgundy yet, but when I taste it, I can already imagine what Burgundy would be like. So that does that for me. It might not do it for everybody, but. No, that's, that's, I can, that's a lot where the passion comes into play because when you, when you can be taken away to somewhere else, um, that's a yes. fun, fun thing. All right. So I'm going to pivot a little bit because yep. I think that if we have restaurant owners or restaurant managers, bartenders, servers, let's give some, some tips and tricks. What do you think the um, best way? So if I am a new server, if I'm new, if I'm a bar manager and I'm trying to teach somebody how to sell wine, I've got a young staff right now. We're coming out of a pandemic. There's a lot of new people that have switched mm -hmm. jobs. They're coming back to their old jobs, but there's new teams involved. What's the best way to learn about wine or to sell wine? What's the best advice you can give? Advice, first off, is know the product that's on the list that you're selling. Even if you don't know anything beyond that, learn that list because that's what you're selling. Um, you can read. You can read Wine for Dummies. If you really don't know anything, Wine for Dummies is actually a really good basic introduction to, to wine knowledge. And then I would suggest The Wine Bible by Karen McNeil. That's, that is written in a way that's very creative. It's not so stodgy and stuck up about, you know, bricks and 
you know, all that kind of geeky blind stuff. So those two books are worth reading. Know your product. And then um, I would say, read the customer. That's what I always did. If I walked up to somebody and they're talking about that, they, you mentioned this, White Zen. They drink White Zen. I would, I'd say, look, I'm happy to give you White Zen. We have it. I will pour you a glass of that. Would you be willing to try something? We have a Riesling that you might like. Um, and it, and they rarely do they ever say, no, I don't, I want to try it. Just give me my White Zen. So you come out with a little taste of, of this Riesling, right? And from, from Washington State because they could be a little bit sweeter. And they take the, oh my gosh, I've never had this. I had no idea. Well, would you like a glass of this? Yes, give me a glass. They feel like I've, I'm branching out a little bit. If they, people do like White Zen, then give them what they want. But it really starts with you as a server. Know your product, read up on it, and then read the customer. Don't try to sell them on something more expensive. Um, that'll backfire in a heartbeat because they think you're greedy. You know, yeah. give them what they like. It's even better to say, look, I know you, you might want to jump to this particular Cabernet, but we just brought in this cab and the bottle price is $10 cheaper. And uh, I think you're going to love it. I think you're going to try it. And then they, you save them 10 bucks. It's going to come back in your tip. You know, oh, I think so a hundred percent. It's I, I am a huge, I, mean, I think upselling is, is important. I think that as, as a server or a bartender, you are a salesperson. But ultimately, mm -hmm. you're trying to ex expand on the guest experience. If I can make you have a legitimate experience that you want to go tell people about, then I've then I've won. If they're buying wine, that's great. It's not water with lemon go away from me. They're getting an appetizer. They're going to buy wine. At that point, I'm not going, well, you need to drink Camus. Oh, well, you've got to have this. I'm saying, what do you like? And I think that just a simple question of walking up to a table and asking the guest, do you drink wine? It's so yeah. easy. And I, you know, I don't drink anymore. Uh, I haven't drank in almost right. two years, but people will come to the table and go, hi, welcome to XYZ restaurant. Let me tell you about our Chardonnay tonight. Da, da, da. And let me tell you about our bourbon specials tonight. And I'm like, uh, we don't drink. And it's, I don't want to be a jerk about it, but like you could easily say, guys, do we drink? Do we want to hear about these things? Yeah. yeah. And a lot yeah. of times people will say, yeah, we're going to drink wine. Then, then, then they're telling you, yes, tell me about what you have. And it lets you know as a salesperson which direction to go. It absolutely, you are so right. And you said the key word, it's an experience for them. And that's what you're trying to do. And I'm sure you had this. I still remember working at the Mad Platter. I'd have repeat customers come in. Like I remember this particular couple that would come in. I would have the, I'd put down the menus and say, hey, good to see you guys. Hey, give me a second. I just got to run some food. I'll be right back. I'd come back to the table. They'd hand me the menus and say, just order for us. You know, we'll take what I say. You can move for white or red. They're like red. Okay, done. And I generally knew what they liked and, and they always had a great experience and they'd come back again. Right. That was the whole yeah. thing, giving them a memorable experience. So that's, that's key. That's well said by you. I like that. And people will leave, you know, when you turn them onto something new, when you, when somebody's a white Zinfandel drinker, chances are they, they drink the pink drink. They don't want to drink. I mean, cause that's just what they know. So yeah. many people out there who come in to eat in a restaurant are so scared about wine. Like wineless intimidate people like crazy. That's why you see a lot of people just buy house wine. I'll just yep. do the house. When they say mm -hmm. I'll just do the house, that means to me, what that means is I'm intimidated by your list. There's 80 bottles here. I don't know a lot about wine. I'm just going to get what's easy for me and get the hell out of here. I, I know I want a glass of wine. I'm just going to get it. And then I'm done. So if you can right. say, I always tell servers or bartenders or whoever it is, Start with varietals. So start with Chardonnay and Cabernet and start mm -hmm. with your house and then start moving up and kind of ask questions and read and take notes. And when you yourself learn the basics, because Cabernet and Chardonnay, obviously the two, the, the people, most, most people buy those. And then I'd maybe go to Pinot Noir, Pinot Grigio, but you, you learn those varietals and you learn the subtle nuances between the varietals. This one is a stainless steel fermented. This one has new French oak. This one right. tastes this way. This one tastes this way. So that when you go to a table, just having the confidence of knowing your own wine list and being able to turn somebody onto something and be confident about it. The first time you do that at a table as somebody who's who's nervous about selling wine, the first time you go to that table and you turn them on to something that's a little bit. I always get Kendall Jackson. Well, I'm going to put you into this one. And they go, oh, I didn't know that this is amazing. I'm going to go tell <laughs> my friends. You get a satisfaction inside of you 
if you have that spirit of service, if you get a set, when they leave and they go, I just turned them on to something, a new experience those people had, and they're leaving here feeling enriched and nourished because they learned something new today. And I got them to try something outside of their comfort zone that they're going to go tell their friends about. That, that to me, is worth everything. Right. It is. You're exactly right. And and that is a spirit of service. If that's in you, that that's that's a lot of fun. I also would say, too, um, I really like that idea of asking the, the table, you know, do we drink? Do, do we want to try something? The other question that I think is fun to ask is, well, what do you normally drink? Like, I drink wine. So what's your go to? Tell me what your go to. You, you do it in a casual way. The response is, well, I generally drink Chardonnay out of a box, and they sort of sheepishly, you know, sheepishly look down, which they shouldn't, but they do because you know they just don't they don't have knowledge and they don't want to be embarrassed and they don't want to feel stupid. And then if you can take that out of it and go, oh, cool, no, don't worry about it. I mean, let me try something for you here. I'll give you some Chardonnay. You like that? Let's try this. See if you like it. I mean. People just like you said, they, they're intimidated by lists because it makes them feel stupid, and nobody likes to feel stupid, and they shouldn't. Americans, we don't grow up learning wine at all. We're never taught it at all. Europe, these kids are drinking at a young age, um, you know, and learning about wine from a very young age. So, I, and you know, and it's so easy too if you just. I think you have to be proactive. I think so many people out there go to work, they get a weight job, it's a, a side gig or whatever. And they're waiting for somebody to teach them about wine or they're just waiting for like osmosis to happen and they're just being around it. They're just going to learn like it's OK to go to the bartender. It's OK to go to your bar manager and say, hey, I'd like to try some Cabernets today. I'm really trying to increase my wine knowledge. I think 100 percent of the time, if anybody walked up to me and said, hey, I really want to learn more wines. Can I try some stuff? I'd be like, hell yeah, you can come try some stuff. Like yeah. that's like the number one thing I'd want anybody to come say to me because you're wanting to, to to educate yourself and grow in this profession. And everybody wants that. Everybody wants you to do that. Exactly. And and just from a, just talk numbers standpoint, you want people to have the experience, but, and I'm sure you go through your, you know, your, your uh, servers telling them this, the difference between selling an iced tea versus a glass of wine. And, and, and if you can, if you can do that from a financial standpoint yourself, you know, it, it does raise a check average. So it's not just giving an experience, which you will, but also will benefit you. I mean, over in the long haul, if it will benefit you financially in the job that you are called to do, you know, I can guarantee you if you go, if you went to a hundred restaurants and 99 of those restaurants, the person that makes the most money in that restaurant does two things. One is they work the most, they come to work <laughs> and they work the most. And two is uh, they sell wine. They know yep. their wines and they can sell wine. The, the highest it. earner does both of those things. They work the most and they know their wines the most. Right. Right. I would, you know, and you asked a question earlier that popped in my head. One thing I would tell people, whether it's, you know, servers or people coming into restaurants, just general wine buyers, generally most stores in our area can find a wine that you like. If you go to, to Mirabol's and you have a wine you've never had before, that then and they like it, then they're going to say, where can I get this? Server has no idea because they don't know where to, where you can buy this thing. But the, you take a picture with your phone that if you're the, the guest, uh, go into your local wine store and say, I want this wine get this for me, please. If you could, I want to buy a case. They can get it for you outside of any allocation or just out of stock. They can get it. They don't have to find the store. The store they go to can get it for them. Okay. Excellent. That's good news. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, all right. So we are, <clears throat> we're kind of getting towards the end here and sure. I will ask you this last question and then I'm going to open the floor for you. Um, what do you what what's on what's on trend right now? What are the what is what are people drinking right now? What's hot and what's coming up? What's what's what are the new things for summer? Oh, that's really good. Um, that's an excellent question. So you know the old standbys uh, certainly work. Prosecco in particular goes gangbusters, always has, but it's really picked up. And I I know you remember a time when we couldn't sell prosecco into any restaurants, right? Because they didn't have nothing to do with prosecco, right? And same with rosé. Rosé now, I mean, you look look on a shelf in you know whether it's a grocery store or uh, independent, there's whole shelves now based off of rosé. All these kind of rosés from all over. So those things are still really, really popular. I think what's kind of a trend, if we can break out of it a little bit, what I think is a trend is um, some, a little bit more experimentation with uh, more obscure white wines in the summertime. I heard somebody talking about a Vino Verde 
right? Ooh, yeah. Like it just, you know, that Incredible. type of thing where they've never had it. It's not expensive. And they, they're like, wow, this is delicious. I'm going to keep buying this Vino Verde. So I think it, at least in the, you know, millennials is thrown around too much in my opinion, but certainly the age group there, they're more into trying new things rather than the same thing over and over. And I think that bodes well for restaurants in particular, because you can have an Albarino on your list. You can have um, a Vino Verde on your list. You could have a Gavi on your list, right? These are white wines that people might not be familiar with. People are more I know it's so good. Oh. It's such a great wine. So, um, I like that you're an Italian wine nut. I like oh, this. Man. This is good. Uh, the the uh, Gavi is one of those wines that if you like Sauvignon Blanc, you like a good crisp yeah. wine that almost that's like a, a new world style that drinks like an old world wine. Like Gavi to me is where it's at. You know, that's a perfect description. I'm going to borrow that if you don't mind. <laughs> I'm going to borrow that when I'm out in the market. That's good. I've never said that. I like that. That's an exactly great way to describe it. So I always said Albarino was like if if Savion Blanc had a child with um, what was the other, it would be like Shannon Blanc. If they had a child, Albarino would be that child, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but I like, I like your guy. You know, what I like to do back to the server training is if you have a wine like a Gavi, right? Or if you're doing a Malbec and a Tarantes, right? You're going, mm -hmm. what is a Tarantes? Nobody's selling Tarantes, but it's another great little grape that not a lot of people know about. I like to do wine features in the restaurant. And mm -hmm. I do them for two months at a time. And I do both of mine. I'll, I'll do like Green Hills Grill versus Maribel. And I have a big trophy. I have a big, huge cup. It's called the Smithing Cup. Stephen Smithing is the owner. <laughs> and then the restaurant that sells the most of it gets to keep the cup over that two months in their kitchen. It's a whole it's a whole thing. But um, I started with Cabernet and Chardonnay. And I did a feature of Cabernet and Chardonnay. And every single day in lineup, we talk about that. And I let the servers that didn't know a whole lot about Cabernet and Chardonnay, every day for two months, they had to talk about Cabernet and Chardonnay at their tables. And then that opened up the conversation during lineups to, hey, what other Cabernets do we have? And how is this Cabernet that we're featuring today different from those Cabernets? And after two months of talking to their tables about Cabernet and Chardonnay, it's amazing that they all of a sudden were comfortable talking about Cabernet and Chardonnay. And then I did Pinot Noir and Pinot Grigio. And I talked about why Pinot Noir from the Sonoma coast. And I did a, a traditional Pinot Grigio from Italy and why those two are what those Pinot grapes and why they're different. And then they talk about Pinot Noir and Pinot Grigio for two months. Then the next two months I did Malbec and Tarantes. So we talked about Argentina and why this new world style grape. And then after six months, all the servers that had worked there for six months, all of a sudden knew everything about Cabernet, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Grigio, Malbec and Tarantes. And all of a sudden they're like, I know about wine now. What yes. is this? Yes. And uh, my distributor loved it because I sold 85 cases of you know, they're Pinot Noir and Pinot Grigio and they're like, hell yeah, let's do this again. And now I have yes. negotiating power for every two months. I'm bringing in these different wines and it was great. Uh, yeah. And, and servers love that. Servers love general managers like you, you know, they, they love that because they're, they're learning and growing and it's, it's education. They're going to take beyond the job. Right. Oh, yeah. Whenever they get out of the restaurant, they feel like, wow, I've, I know something now. This is really, really great. So well done. Well done on your part. Well, let me know if you need you. any wines for let me know if you need any wines for your next tip. <laughs> he's like, see, he's like, oh, that sounds like an 80, say 80 always, cases. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> so I'm still a salesman, I guess, at some level, right? Those are the words <laughs> I wanted to hear. Um, Jimmy, it is so great catching up with you, man. I feel it it's is. so great seeing you. Every time I see you over the last 20 plus years, 23 years since I worked with you, we were young and and uh going crazy yeah. <laughs> and the merchant i said merchants i don't think we mentioned that we worked at the merchants in cool springs that's right right most people don't realize that there was a merchants in cool springs and that that is now a pinnacle bank bank yes it's it's that bank right there on mallory so. everybody kept coming in and saying i thought this was a bank and we're like no no this is a restaurant and it was a cool restaurant it was really nice I uh, still remember, I'm going to say this, I still remember their one dessert. Do you remember the chocolate cake with the white Zinfandel frosting in yes. the middle? Oh, that was so good. That was they a did, really uh, great dessert. Bananas Foster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, the thing I remember most about that restaurant was those beautiful gold plates with the words merchants written on them. The gold oh, yeah. Meltline. Gorgeous plates. And then I remember Sunday morning for, um, for breakfast or brunch or whatever you called it back then, we used to get 
cases of champagne. We had these big ice buckets. And at 12 noon, we were allowed to start drinking in Cool Springs. We would yes. pop all these bottles of champagne and just free pour to the entire restaurant. It's a champagne brunch. And all you can drink champagne. I remember there being clergy and pastors that would come in and have us pour their champagne in coffee cups. And all these different <laughs> people like, I don't want to be seen drinking on Sunday. And they would, we'd have all these different glasses we'd have to pour the champagne into which I thought was just so indicative of Nashville in the early 2000s. That, that is, that is exactly right. That's, that's so true. I forgot about the champagne. I, I really did. I remember the blue roll-ups. I remember that, that the, the napkins rolling up the blue, blue, but uh, yeah, that's so funny. I remember being at the, at the bar, like I was working at when uh, Peyton Manning, I was so weird. I brain Peyton Manning lost the, did he lose the Heisman to the wide receiver? from michigan that year i don't remember yeah anyway that was it that was just sort of in my brain like things you remember at certain places so i so on that front i was working the day dale earnhardt died oh, oh the day good. dale earnhardt died i was working that shift watching the daytona 500 and um it was like oh dale earnhardt had a wreck and then later that night we found out that he died and i was like what oh. Oh. we were just watching the race at the end of the race and dale earnhardt crashed and i was like oh man he didn't win because you know, he was a big, big time favorite for everything. And um, yeah, I remember that day like it was I knew exactly where I was watching on that TV around the big horseshoe bar there. You know, and I, I remember the concept was, a, a, if I remember correctly, it was sort of like fine food, fine, you know, fine dining food for families in a sense. right? Yeah, because exactly there'd be a lot of people in Williamson County who didn't want to go downtown to get fine, you know, a dinner and they want to take their kids. Right. That's kind of what the concept was. Yeah, it was, and it worked. It was a beautiful restaurant. It might have been before its time. Yeah, Who knows? yeah. You know, so. Well, Jimmy, like I said, it's great to catch up with you, man. One of the things I do with all of my guests is at the end of the show, I like to open up the the floor for you to make whatever statement, whatever to take us out, kind of in a Jerry's final thought. Mm -hmm. Whatever you want to say for as long as you want to say it, uh, you're speaking to my audience. Cool. Go. Okay. It's rather brief. So I would say, don't be intimidated. Learn what you can as much as you can or as little as you can. It doesn't matter. And don't let anybody tell you that you should like a wine. You either like a wine or you don't like a wine. Someone like me can tell you that this is well-made, but that doesn't mean that you're going to like it. So I always tell people, whatever your knowledge level is, right? Where, whatever you are on the spectrum, you're still a Roman emperor. It's a thumbs up. Or it's a thumbs down and it's all personal preference and you hold on to that but i think the more you explore the more you learn the more you taste that's a good thing about wine you can taste it the more you get that you'll see your palate expand into different horizons and it's not going to break your bank you don't have to buy these white burgundies i showed earlier because or the red burgundy if it's not in your price point you can find great wine in your price point that's how i did I love it. And and you know what? That's the fun. You get to get friends together, put a brown bag around a bunch of $7 bottles of wine or $10 bottles of wine and taste them without looking at the label and then identify the one you like. And what a fun process. Like the yes. idea of trying yes. a bunch of wines together and talking about it was how I learned. We just got a bunch of brown bags. My buddies come together and we would open these bottles of wine and go, I really like number two. And then we'd look at it and go, oh, I didn't know that I liked the, this Merlot or whatever yes. it was, you know? Yes. Yep. Very true. Jimmy, I wish you nothing but the best of success. I look forward to seeing you around the restaurants and um, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for doing it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate the time. All right, buddy.